everyone, and welcome to another Pink Bike Podcast. I think this one's number 47. I'm not so sure about that, but I'm sure about the topic today. We're talking about high pivot bikes. So we've seen a ton of high pivot bikes over the last few years, from downhill bikes to trail bikes. We've actually almost tested most of them too. Uh, and I say that, but it's actually, it's Casimir that's ridden the large majority of them, including the new Forbidden Dreadnought that was just released. I have Casimir here today. Kaz, how many high pivot bikes did you ride this weekend? Three or four? No, I didn't ride any high pivot bikes this weekend. But in the oh. past few weeks, I've ridden a bunch. What did I ride this weekend? No, I went skiing this weekend, and then I rode a non-high pivot bike. Yeah. Oh, how was it an like electric you? bike? Uh, well, I guess I should. Ex- I skied one day, I rode a normal bike one day, and then I e-biked the next day. I took a three-day weekend, so um, I did all the things. Were you ready to talk about high pivot bikes anyway, even though yeah. you didn't ride one on the yes. weekend? I didn't ride one on the weekend. I rode one last a lot week, of them. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, we can talk about them. <laughs> right. And to ask us some of the hard questions about those bikes, we've got boss man Brian Park. And we've also got the bread pudding to my chocolate pudding, James Smurthwaite. Hey, James, were there any high pivot bikes in the news recently? You know, it is funny you say that, Mike. Um, it is. You just mentioned the Forbidden Dreadnought. And, you know, whenever I looked at that Druid, the, the earlier Forbidden bike, it always looked to me like it should have, you know, longer travel than that 130 millimeter, probably due to that sort of high pivot and idler setup. And now there is a Forbidden bike with travel to match that look. And um, that's the Dreadnought. The travel's bumped up to 154 millimeters. Kaz, you're implying you could maybe put a 180 millimeter double crown fork up front. That kind of gives you an idea of the att- intentions of this bike. It's a bit of a bruiser. Um, do you want to talk us through some ride impressions, Kaz? Yeah, I mean, it kind of has a similar feel to the Druid, but with more travel. So it's got that um, kind of like ground-hugging feel. It's longer, slacker, all the things you'd expect from a bike with more travel. Um, and I think what's impressive is just at speed, and you can just really carry that speed through super chunky, rough uh, section of terrain and get a nice kind of almost like a carvy feel. Like when you come into turns, that bike is pretty long because of the wheelbase extends as you kind of sink into the travel. So when you push into it while you're cornering it's a um yeah it feels super solid and stable Kaz, are they doing really short chain stays because of that high pivot so like a, the static number is really short but then under sag the bike gets quite a bit longer no they're not this one uh the size large they do different chain stay lengths for all sizes but on this one the size large has a 450 millimeter chain stay length um so that means when you're sitting deeper in the travel you're looking like 460 even longer um you know by the end so it's a uh, definitely long and stable but still i found it to be pretty maneuverable what does the bike jump like um this one had an air shock on it that had a float x2 so it, it jumped pretty well like there is one thing we'll, we'll talk about later when we talk about pros and cons of these style bikes um sometimes they're a little bit harder to get off the ground but i didn't really have too much trouble with this one it, it seemed uh you know more neutral not super poppy but it also didn't feel just like stuck to the ground either right more importantly than how the bike rides can you tell me where that sick name comes from what is the dreadnought the Dreadnought is a, uh, it's a class of battleship from like the 1900s. They, they made it and it turned into, they just put all the guns on it and it was like the, the sea dominator. So, I got to say. Pretty good name. I got to say, Forbidden, man, two for two on the names. Two 100%. super badass names with the Druid and the Dreadnought. That's badass. Yeah, it's hard to come up with good names and I'll say that. Like that one's pretty sweet. And then they also kind of took it as a plan where it's like Dreadnought, like fear nothing. And then they kind of use that as their tagline. So yeah, they, they're doing good with the naming. Uh, next up, we have the propane Hugene. So the original Hugene in 2018, that kind of set the blueprint for the entirety of propane's rage. 
uh, range. It moved the shock from behind the seat tube to inside the front triangle, and it debuted that Pro 10 suspension system that now sits on all the bikes. We've even seen a sort of a prototype downhill bike that uses that now. So this bike, this new version, doesn't look to be quite as revolutionary, more of sort of an evolution. It adds 10 millimeters of travel, um, pretty significant tweaks to the geometry, and the suspension curve has been tweaked as well. How familiar are you guys with propane bikes? Have you ever ridden them? Yeah, we had that. Um, we had the spin drift in the last field test, a little longer travel, 180 mil. That's really the only one I've ridden, but uh, I liked how that thing rode, and that was super efficient feeling for 180 mils of travel. So it'd be be fun to hop on this one. I'm a big fan these days of that, this kind of 140, 150 millimeter travel bracket that's sort of emerging. Like where I live, that's almost the ideal bike for doing everything. So it'd be kind of fun to try this one out. I've only ridden that propane for the efficiency test and the impossible climb. So, I mean, that's, that's not really, that's not really testing. You know everything you need to know about that bike. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) What I do know though, is that it pedals pretty damn well. So uh, I mean, the Eugene is a completely different bike, of course, but I would imagine that it, it gets a move on pretty good. Um, Brian, this week you took a turn moonlighting as a bike reviewer. Uh, you got the long-awaited review of the Moots Womble Titanium Hardtail you've been ripping around Vancouver on. You called it a... I don't know uh, why you guys complain about your job. It's it's really easy. You just, just write some words. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you guys do twice as many reviews now. All right. Well, you did one after I've been the bike for six months, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to actually say, Brian, that the first time I read it, I was like, man, this thing's written really well. And then I was like, well, he did have six months. <laughs> Can I have six months for bike reviews? Uh, should we talk about how long it's taken some of your bikes to get done? <laughs> no, no, we shouldn't actually. Let's backtrack. <laughs> um, you called this a, a boomer bike, Brian. What do you mean by that? Oh, I said it's more than just a boomer bike. But yes, I did say it's that Moots makes bikes for rad dad boomers, and this is a Moots. Um, I don't know. People glommed onto that. It's it's definitely a bike for people who like it's it's they're geared at older people, which makes sense when they cost a million dollars. Um, and boomers a state of mind. It's not exactly fifty seven years old and up. Whatever you know what I'm trying to say. Okay, can I just interrupt you here? I actually have one question that I want to start this. I want to start this section off with. Why did we review a titanium hardtail on pink bike? Because it's not something that we would usually see. So why? Uh, well, first of all, because it's really interesting to see Moots do a bike that is a lot more progressive than their bikes have been in the past. So it's cool to see that. Second, it's gorgeous, and we don't we want to do more interesting, different things with hardtails. Not just ten thousand dollar hardtails, but yeah, that's a category we've we've ignored for a long time. And since you guys are all sensitive about your ankles, I took one for the team and, un, you know, selflessly, selflessly took a bullet and allowed myself to ride a $10,000 hardtail for a while. You're welcome. Yeah, just suffering, <laughs> suffering for the masses there. <laughs> suffering. Oh, God, it was just so such a challenge. <laughs> it Brian, was awesome. You're, it on was a, a lot of fun. you're on a bit of a, a hardtail kick right now. Do we want to? I know we're going to talk about the moots, but you've also got another hardtail. Are you are you our heart resident hardtail tester? <laughs> no, that's I was going to change your business cards, but um, it I will admit it was the moots. The moots is a was a gateway hardtail for me. Um, there's things I really liked about it, and things that I struggled. It just it I I got scared when it got fast and rough, and I think that's because it's a hard tail. I think that there's some, there's no shock on the back, Brian. <laughs> it turns out, 
Um, well, yeah, I'm just curious. I want to see what a hardtail that's simultaneously less capable, like a smaller fork and lighter, but slacker feels like. So I'm building something up. Okay, before we move on, tell me what you liked about this boomer and what you didn't like about the boomer. Uh, no, it's called the Womble. 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 Yeah. The Womble. They could change the name now. I, <laughs> <laughs> tell me how the wombling was, Brian. I just I wom- you out there wombling around. I did. That's exactly what I do. My riding style, I would describe it as wombling. <laughs> it, I mean, it's beautiful. It's quite stiff. Much stiffer than I, you know, my experience on titanium bikes before. Um, I, uh, it, it seriously wants to go. Um, the angles are pretty progressive for moots. Uh, I'd say they're fairly neutral for, for hardtails in this category. Um, it's a lot of money. So, you know, it definitely is for the person that wants to buy a bike and then not think about bikes for the next 20 years. Like it'll be their last bike. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I'm glad they're making them i'm glad they're making them in the u.s um the spec was pretty well done um i i i'm not sure if i'm the right person to be a a titanium evangelist like i don't know if i'm can talk about like oh well this double butted new double butted titanium tube set does xyz like the tube magic is nobody can yeah it's not if they are they're talking out their ass yeah yeah um, but I will say that it did ride really well. It did feel more muted at the bar than I was expecting. Um, I hope that, I hope that's just the foam grips cause I got some new foam grips now. <laughs> we'll see. You can save $10,000 and just get foam grips. And then you're exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just get foam grips. <laughs> so I have, I have two things to say about that bike. First off, I love the fact that you spec'd it without cable guides because you were going to oh. run access. I, I mean, that is commitment to ultimate dorkery. I love it. Secondly, why didn't you get that little shock in the back? That little spring thing? The you know YBB. That other bike thing. Yeah, the Cause, YBB. Because this one's, this one's slacker. This oh. one's like more real. This one's oh. more of a regular bike. Yeah. They, they don't do custom angles or anything, do they? I actually don't know. I think they do. Yeah. Yeah. Even but more. I think it's a different program. Well, it's beautiful anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's gorgeous. You know, in a few years, cable guides, will they still exist? 100% yes. Uh, well, Shimano might have something to say about that. Um, it was probably only a matter of time um, when, not if, if we would see their kind of wireless transmission. And it looks like the answer to that could be later this year. Cycling Tips, our uh, sibling site, spotted an SCC application that seemed to imply there was a wireless Shimano group set on the way. Most of the information about the actual components is hidden, but it, it definitely showed that there's a wireless rear derailleur and shifter approved. Noticeably absent there is a front derailleur. That indicates it's a mountain bike, not a road bike product. Um, that confidentiality agreement, that lifts around the time of the Olympics. So if something's coming out... Um, Maybe we'll see something around then. Who knows? Um, what What would you kind of want from a, a wireless Shimano system? I mean, the cable guide's got to go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, if it is a wireless system, um, d- that article or that that patent did they have the 
the application, sorry, did they have the battery was wired, but the shifter was wireless? Was that how it was, James? Not sure of the uh, actual specifics, but yeah. Yeah. I, I think there all a I picture. want. Oh, sorry. All I want that thing is to be like, you just bolt it on and it just runs perfectly like Axis, except you can shift it under power like an idiot like Shimano. Just Casimir, just think about the wirelessness of Axis combined with the underload shifting of Shimano. Are you excited? Yeah, I did that once. I just put Axis on the Shimano drivetrain. Oh, me too, but we're not supposed to say that. Oh, secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. No, I think, it, I mean, yeah. Was it I'm quite not the perfect? biggest. Uh, no, it worked. It worked very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not the biggest proponent of wireless things just cause I feel like I have more batteries to charge than outlets in my house. My electricity bill is getting real high, but the, uh, yeah, if they make it, I think just making that battery in the right place, whether I don't want any more of that to like the, the current system where the battery goes in the frame and then comes loose and rattles around. I don't want that, but if it's a good secure battery system and if it lasts a long time and if it feels like Shimano's current shifting, but wireless that, I mean, that'd probably be pretty cool. I think the big fear is that Shimano is still going to have some wire cable routing nightmares like like with DI2. I think that's the fear. And I, I hope from my standpoint that it whatever they do, that it steps up from where Axis is today. Uh, I think the fear is that it doesn't. But what I'd ask you guys is, it, are we just because we're mountain bike media and we move things from bike to bike and we care about that simplicity, are we just... Are we overblowing the need for everything being so cleanly integrated like Axis? Like maybe it doesn't matter as much to people. I mean, I don't think integration and having like a clean looking bike is a performance thing per se. But I mean, I was out on that BMC with Axis on it and hidden brake cables. It's just so damn nice and clean looking. And it, it is super easy to set up and install. And I mean, that's especially if we're talking seat posts. I know we're talking drivetrains, but, you know, Shimano might do a seat post in the future. Who knows? Especially if we're talking seat posts. It sure is nice. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is like, do, do other people care less about the ease of setup compared to us? I would like say more it, than even if, you know if it integrates nicely and you and you hide it in the in the frame nicely and everything's good. But then once it's done, it's done and it's solid. What does it matter to a lot of people? Uh, I'm still going to say that it should be easy to set up for anybody. Like I, I don't. I would feel bad for the mechanic if he has to. Even if you're not working on your own bike, if your mechanic has to struggle for two hours to get your stuff set up, that's bullshit. Especially since so, it's 2021. So for you, it's a fail. If this if this new thing comes out and there are any wires anywhere connecting to a remote battery, you're out. No, no. I just mean if it's if it's a pain in the ass to like. The other one was just a pain because you had to run the wires the whole way through and then you'd end up with a battery somewhere in your head tube. It just took a lot of time. But I think there's plenty of ways. It'd be very easy for them to improve on the current DI2 wired system. So, um, yeah. But so, I would so you don't think it has to go as far as Axis necessarily? No, not necessarily. Like if they had a, a one, yeah, I don't know how they would run it, but maybe the, the shifters, like Levy said, if the shifters are wireless, but then there's maybe like a little battery separately from the derailleur somewhere. I don't know. We'll see. I just hope it takes advantage of the um, the servoness of the derail. Like that access group is so bombproof. Um, it'd be really nice to take advantage of the potential reliability that comes with not not pulling a derailleur, not moving a derailleur by pulling a cable. When, yeah. 
Uh, do we know if this thing is going to use something that looks like a derailleur as we know it? Or am I completely out to lunch by thinking, hey, I don't know, maybe they're thinking something different now? The derailleur is above the cassette. It goes above it, <laughs> yeah. <instead of> below it. <laughs> I mean, last year, there was some talk about something different eventually coming through being able to use electronics and... and they heard that Levy loves hanger. gearboxes, so they were like, we've got to make the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just brainstorming. I'm just brainstorming. Yeah. Hey, Cass, yeah, I don't know if we'll... Yeah, go for it. What would, what would it take for you to be a fan of, like, a wireless XTR setup and to choose that over Axis? Like, what would you want to see that drivetrain do? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure. Like, if... I think that there's room to improve still on the ergonomics of the uh, like the axis shifter. So if Shimano's been able to have the shifter be a little bit more thumb friendly. Like they've gotten better. Uh, the new, the latest thumb paddle upgrade for the axis is a lot better. But I think that Shimano, that's definitely like a window of opportunity there where they can make that. Um, if they just made it almost match their current shifters, which I really like the shape of, then I'd be pretty happy. Mm-hmm. No front derailleur option though, so you're out, right? That's true. Yeah, I gotta keep running. I'm running that triple till I die. So, <laughs> dudes, I I had to set up two front derailers uh, a little while ago. I don't remember how to do it. It was a nightmare. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> I was very embarrassed. Uh, Levy, I heard that. I heard this new this new Shimano group is actually uh, just like seven front chain rings and single speed oh, in the back. Shit. Oh, <laughs> got to get that get that weight off the axle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Shift under power. Okay, next up, uh, Dan Sapp spotted um, that Cascade Components, who um, we know mainly for their aftermarket links um, that let you tweak the suspension curve of your bike, normally to make it a bit more progressive and a bit more travel. Those guys are developing what looks to be like some SRAM calipers, brake calipers. Um, Dan noticed they look like guide rotors, but the pads look code, so a bit of mixing and matching going on there. They were pretty tight-lipped on any further details, um, but they did say the caliper will be compatible with SRAM internals, although it may end up coming with some higher-end bits to help with performance. Um, And they're exploring some concepts, um, but just don't want to get people's hopes up in case they don't pan out. What do you think they could be sort of playing around with here? First, I want to say, uh, I think it was Aiden that spotted it. So thank you, Aiden, our social media guy. Um, Yeah, I don't really know what they'd be playing around with there. Like, in my mind, I think it'd be cool if companies started making the aftermarket levers again. Remember when, like, Danger Boy and all those, there was all kinds of, like, aftermarket anodized brake levers? Yeah. Those are cool. Those are sick. They should have a comeback. So I don't, like, I've never been riding codes and thought, oh, I wish the caliper was different. Um, But maybe they made it stiffer, stronger. I I wouldn't be surprised if they're, yeah, trying to make maybe a, a stiffer caliper um, piston, different material and different size pistons. I don't know off the top of my head um, what a code, what size the pistons are in codes or even why you would want more power. But they're probably maybe tinkered around with something like that, guys, do you think? Yeah, it could be. It could be but, I mean, as long I'd as like it, more power. Some be, people aren't 130 pounds, Levy. Break less, Brian. <laughs> Go, yeah, just go I even said I Brian. want more power. I'm going to call them super codes because everything is super, super deluxe. So I want super codes to come out. You want more power than like a code RSC has right now. Yeah. Has. And that the last review I wrote, the cabins I mentioned, I think that there should be like super codes for downhill bikes and like e-bikes and for people that want all the power. And then should be regular codes should go on things like trail bikes or like everything. All bikes should have codes basically. 
Kaz, it sounds like what you're talking about, though, is a code break with the same amount of power and better heat dissipation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, but I also do you think, have like, problems heat... with heat buildup on codes? Um, maybe if I want to like Pemberton or something, they can get pretty, pretty loud. Yeah, and there's yeah, maybe a couple trails here, but usually no. Overall, like I'm totally happy with codes, and at the moment they're my go-to breaks. But I do think there's room for them to like trickle down and bring something in at the top. Like those G2s don't cut it for me on really any bike once you're used to codes. So, like even if I was building up a 120 bike, I would put codes on it. The G2s could are fine on that moots. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I could use exactly. cantilever brakes in that moots and be fine. They like wheel well in the cycle. No, I, I still complained. <laughs> I still complained that the rotors were too small. Okay, um, the last bit of news this week. Uh, Mike, you put up a poll asking people what they'd change about their bike, but there was a bit of a, a catch in that they could only change one thing. So you gave them options, everything from suspension travel to wheel size to frame storage. Is it a surprise to see that most people said they just want a lighter bike? A lot of people said that. Yeah, I was actually... I was surprised for sure. So the the biggest replies went to I'd modernize the Geo, slacker longer, C2, steeper C2 bangles, 1,700 people. A thousand people want more and better suspension, and another thousand people just said it needs a new paint job. Yeah, but twi- almost 2,500 people just want it to be lighter, Kaz. Yeah. I, I like that. Like, I'm as much as I, I don't really care a ton about weight, I do like and appreciate lighter bikes. So when you do hear the people say, I don't care, my bike's 40 pounds, it's the best ever, I don't believe them. So I like seeing people think that, yeah, this this bike, I'd like if my bike was a little bit lighter. Because there's no denying that at the end of the day, if you're riding around a 40-pound bike versus a 30-pound bike, if everything else is the same, you should want to ride the 30-pound bike. Right. So, yeah. It, it almost feels like, I might be out to lunch here, but have bikes gotten heavier over the past five years, guys? Yes. Bikes have gotten, we've started asking a lot more of our bikes. In the last True. Five yeah. Years, right. That's we have longer travel dropper posts. We have earlier tires. Like they, the benefits are there. Like I don't yeah. want to go back to mm-hmm. you know tires. Go faster like. on smaller bikes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What What about this? What What would you want your trail bike to weigh, Casimir? Your Your like one twenty, one thirty, twenty nine er trail bike. What do you think it should weigh for how you ride? Uh, it'd be cool to have it like twenty seven pounds or something. Yeah, I agree with that. Which is pretty light. Like most yeah, of the bikes coming in these days are a couple pounds heavier than that. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Brian, how much was your Womble? The Womble was heavy. The Womble was 27 pounds. Jesus. Um, yeah. and, and Without it's, cable guides, it weighed that much? No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> imagine. The, yeah. Um, and I'm, I, I mentioned that. I was curious about it. It's, there's a lot of tire on that bike. They use big old 2.6 um, tires, like big meats. And I... I was, I'd be curious if I'd had more time on the bike to try it with, with some like seven, 800 gram tires instead of 12, 13, 1400 gram tires. Oh, Jesus. You had 1200 gram tires on your titanium hardtail? Not my, not my choice. I had ride it the way that came. Okay. They were good tires. They're those, um, I was impressed the Vittoria Barzos. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Bigger. They probably, the big size definitely helped on that hardtail too, I would imagine. Yeah, it felt good. Um, but, yeah. it, you know, for that bike, I, I did question the spec because to me, that bike really worked so well on the smoother open terrain and that those aren't the right tires for it. So it was like, did they spec to address a shortcoming and instead they could have chosen to spec to like make it better at what it's good at? I don't know. It's a hard decision, but. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I would have liked that. The 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 very inexpensive steel or less expensive steel hardtail I'm building as a cattle that that bike was a catalyst for that thing's going to come in under i think it'll be like 24 and a half pounds without too much trouble so for steel hardtail that's crazy light. he's he's got my wheels yeah. on it i've got those oh, super yeah, light, those super <laughs> yeah. light wheels but your steel hardtail right, like five thousand hey, dollar wheels on it <laughs> <laughs> they're two thousand dollar wheels and mm. if i didn't have a heavy boat anchor frame i wouldn't need to have stupid light wheels <laughs> mm. <laughs> Okay, let's take it to questions, guys. And today we've got two of them. They're both about front suspension. This one's for me, but I'm going to deflect it to Casimir. Uh, J.M. Hills, he says, serious question here. Since there's a lot of effort being placed in trying to create stiff single crown forks and those forks offering close to the same weight for the same levels of travel, but still with less rigidity compared to a similar travel dual crown fork, would it make sense for Fox, Manitou, RockShox, for the suspension companies to create enduro-specific dual-crown forks? He says that would also open up air volume options as well, like we saw with um, Inten's uh, one-and-a-half-crown fork. And I tend to agree. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, Kaz? No, I don't think so. I don't think oh. there's a need for that. I mean, if you wanted to run a dual-crown, you could drop a boxer to 180 mils of travel or something. It exists. And I don't think they'd be able to make that that much lighter like how would you change that fork in order to meet, meet this person that thinks they need that style for their you know 170 mil enduro bike um i just don't see the market and you know i know there are people out there i'd say a vocal minority that want that but like if you're having trouble with the stiffness of a 38 or a zeb then you should probably just have a dual crown and just they exist already so um i don't really see a market for that Sorry, enthusiast mike casimir yeah, there's that too. There's also the fact that you, you know, when you have a, you can drop the travel more on a, like a 38, you can drop it down to 160 or 150, but you're probably not going to have someone running a 150 mil dual crown. Like that would seem even sillier. So I don't see the need, but somebody does, I'm sure. How much, how much more does a boxer weigh than a Zeb? It's, it's like less than half a pound, right? Yeah. Maybe 200, 150 grand, something. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, for, for a big guy, Mm-hmm. who's racing enduro it sure makes a lot of sense well why do you think that they're suffering from a lack of stiffness with their zeb oh, no. though no 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 but just like those people i would also argue that the people weren't suffering a lack of stiffness from a 36 either but the 38 or the zeb is more rigid and more better so why not go to a dual crown fork i mean these guys are basically going world cup downhill speeds almost yeah, but have you seen the corners yeah i see them they go to Europe, Europe and they, they got just those do turns. wheel pivots. <laughs> yeah, but wheel it's harder. <laughs> Everybody bitched so hard about knock block. Now you want them to have dual crown forks? Hey, <laughs> I don't want a dual crown fork. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> if I want a dual crown fork, I just want a downhill bike. I mean, I think I think it makes I think there's an interesting spot in the market there for it. I wonder if I don't even know about the weight or the stiffness is the thing, but you know, we've had creaky crowns for a long, long time and you know, if we've got de- um, intend bolting half of a half of a uh, dual crown fork to the top, and and forsprung putting putting weird little things at the bottom for extra volume, like at some point, it's not crazy. It's not crazy to just do a light dual crown. It's been fork done before. I mean, I yeah. Do you remember Specialized Enduro with the dual crown fork? I do. Anybody? I do. Yeah. I almost bought one. Did you? Yeah, you, that was a boomer bike when it came out. 
it was the people that were buying that that were coming to the store were like, ooh, look at that. It's got a dual crown fork. It's like a motorcycle. I want that. Mm-hmm. And then the fork had major the, issues and the it would first soil when you went down a set of stairs. But it al- it also had torque caps on it. Not called it torque caps, but yeah. something else. <laughs> bike was ahead of its time. And I, yeah, yeah. I bought a giant I bought a giant that had Sid dual crown forks. Ooh. Back in the day. See, you were ahead of your time. Yeah, yeah you were way ahead. That was down, yeah, that's the future them. of down country. <laughs> <laughs> that but was a down country bike. I bent the shit out of it. And then immediately went and bought a Brody 8 ball. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, there's always been kind of rumblings you want dual crown forks, but they do exist. You can change the travel on existing dual crown forks, and I don't think you'd want to get those lighter. So we'll see if it ever happens. But the demand, I'd say, is lower than the need. Hey, Brian. How come we never see enduro racers using dual crown forks? Uh, because they're sponsored by people that don't produce dual crown forks in that category. Well, they exactly yeah. So they make the dual crown forks, but it's not like you know the, these riders sponsored by Rockshox and Fox. I would I would wonder if they would want to use a dual crown fork and if they would be. Well, I mean, they would. I don't think they'd be allowed to use if one. They but. Thought, no, yeah, they would. If they thought there was a real advantage, they would push for it. Um, like if they thought they were being held back or had a competitive advantage over their their peers, they would they would push for it. Um, I think that the benefit of the dual crown fork might be more for consumers than for people who get a new fork all the time. Yeah, I, I disagree totally. I don't think they need to come out. So if anyone's listening, my vote is for no lightweight dual crown forks. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> please don't. Everybody God, remember this podcast, two thousand twenty five. I don't hate. We're gonna see if. EWS guys are using all all dual crown forks. Yeah. I feel like when you're climbing, they feel a little bit stranger too. I don't know. If th- maybe that's just because the weight or something. Well, they need a lockout. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, I think... Lo- just I joking. <laughs> I think... I, I will say that the biggest performance advantage of a dual crown fork has nothing to do with stiffness or strength or whether or not the crowns creak. It's when you look down, Dave Mustaine starts playing guitar in your head. You see the dual crown fork, and you just want to go faster. That's already blaring from my backpack with my Bluetooth speakers in it. <laughs> oh God! Didn't we? Didn't you can't we get that at this me in the riding buddy thing? rides. Ugh. Yeah, no, I, I hate I those don't. people. That's a joke. I don't actually have that. <laughs> okay, let's get on to the next question. This one is from Hal J Two. He wants to know: Can we really tell the difference between Kashima coating on a Fox Factory versus the black anodized on a Rockshox and Performance Elite? Uh, my answer: Hell no, Kazimer. Nope, I can't. Brian, it's almost like we should point one of our mad scientists at uh, at this one and see if we can come up with an actual answer rather than like I would say my gut feel is probably not um as well so acknowledging my biases out of the gate but yeah we've got we've got somebody that we're we're looking at doing bolting some data onto some things and and doing some blind testing and figuring that out i just want to say that in a lab setting i of course like i'm not going to be surprised if that kashima stuff has an effect but out in the real world where you haven't cleaned your fork seals in three months, let alone drop your lowers. When was the last time you dropped your lowers? You listening. That that coating, it means that it does nothing, basically. There's too much other stuff going on. There's a lot of tolerance stack up between between sliding two surfaces together in a lab and riding a bike down a trail, for sure. Kaz, would you buy a Kashima fork? Like, it costs 200 or whatever dollars more. Would you pay that money? 
Uh, personally, I wouldn't know. Like, because you can get the same damper in that performance elite. Although aftermarket, sometimes it's harder. I feel like they don't offer as many. They want you to buy the Kashima coated one aftermarket, right? Right. Is it? Am I? Am I correct here? I think it's harder to buy the performance elite one. It usually comes on the bike. And it's not as readily available aftermarket. Yeah. I will say that it looks sick, and I've definitely spent two hundred dollars on dumber things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Counterpoint. <laughs> Okay, so that is enough about front suspension. Let's get to the back of the bike and talk about high pivot suspension designs. So the last three or four years have seen the return of high pivot full suspension bikes. It's been around for a long time, but high pivot bikes, they've never really become the it suspension design to have. You go back a few years and it was all about virtual pivot point, but at no point do I remember saying, man, I really need that high pivot bike. And for a long time, you could read countless comments under articles about single pivot bikes, high or not, that were basically shitting all over them because they weren't a high pivot virtual design that apparently, if you read the comments, were inherently better. And that's what the internet was saying anyway. But then something changed, guys, a few years ago, and high pivot bikes went from being fairly rare and exotic to being all over the place. Kaz, do you, do you know what changed a few years ago? Um, I think there were some World Cup wins that probably her good World Cup results that started bringing them, you know, having a comeback. I think Common Saw with that Supreme, um, that's been a high pivot design for a while and yep. that definitely caught some attention. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Basically, Common DH bike, their downhill team, and especially Omri Peron, they basically started winning all the things on their new Supreme that used a super high main pivot and an idler pulley. And that seemed to take a lot of brands, uh, sorry, seemed to make a lot of brands take another look at high pivot suspension. And since then, we've seen a ton of new examples. And we're going to get to those, including how they feel on the trail. But first, we got to go over what a high pivot layout looks like, why you may or may not want one, pros and cons. And after all, suspension design, every suspension design has its own pros and cons. So, I mean, just because no, no, high no, pivot you're bikes wrong. are... Every... I, oh, I, I oh. read the marketing thing. I read the marketing thing and I, I heard that this suspension design, whatever one I've purchased, has no compromises. Everything yeah, it yeah. perfectly balances all the things. And there's no uh the brake input and the pedaling forces and the I don't know, I remember I forget. <laughs> hey, hey Brian, you need to get into the comment section and let everybody know. Oh. Tell the world quickly. <laughs> Don't let your womble how efficient it is. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> so we're also we're also going to talk about some of the OG high pivot bikes like the Balfa BB7. Oh, yes. Be still my beating heart. You but first, Kaz, Brian, James, let's talk about what a high pivot design is and why you might want one. So uh, most bikes, the majority of them, their main pivot, that's the big one that connects the chainstays to the front triangle. On most bikes, it's located I don't know, somewhere around the top of the chain ring. If you look at like a new specialized Stumpy, Transition, Trek, uh, the Norco multi-pivot bikes, many others, and you're going to see what I mean. Basically, that pivot location in combination with a whole bunch of other stuff, the idea there is to create a bike that's pretty decent at all the things. You need a bike that's kind of all-around neutral suspension performance. Um, there are a whole bunch of other things that determine how it's going to perform. Of course, but that's a big part of it. But a high pivot bike, well, that main pivot is somewhere up above the chainring. And a lot of times 
It's more than just above it. It is way up there, like three feet above it, like on some of the the crazier designs, like a Red Alp. Uh, But why? Why would you want your pivot so high? Uh, Basically, that lets the rear wheel arc backward when it hits a bump and goes through its travel. So picture yourself flying down a trail, the rear wheel hits a rock. If the rear wheel has to go almost straight up through its travel... It can't do that as easily, theoretically, if it can move backwards and out of the way. That lets it move out of the way quicker, and theoretically, people say, that lets the bike carry more speed through rough stuff, um, maybe carry a little more momentum, and feel a little more forgiving through that stuff. Kaz, would you generally agree with that description of a high pivot bike? Yeah, I generally agree with that. There's Obviously, we'll go into pros and cons, but uh, but yeah... the idea behind it is basically that rearward axle path is the overarching goal here. Yeah, yeah. And I'd, I'd also argue that because of that, we usually see high pivot bikes or high pivot suspension designs on bikes meant for more aggressive riding. So obviously downhill bikes. But I mean, Kaz, when was the last time you saw a high pivot cross country race bike? Um, I have never seen one. And a lot of that has to do with the weight. We were talking about weight also, earlier, but yeah, yeah if you're counting grams, gonna... you're probably not going to want to toss in a, uh, an extra long chain and uh, either pulley to go with it. Right. Yeah. We're going to get to that. So drawbacks up next. Um, and the first one, the one that we have to mention first and explain is the chain growth. So if your pivot is all the way up high and your chain ring is where it belongs and you're standing up and you're coming down to trail cas, what, what's going to happen when you hit a bump? Uh, yeah, there's a, a high amount of pedal kickback basically because your chain is pulling, your chain's moving backwards and it's tugging at those pedals. So if you didn't have anything to counteract that force, you there's a good chance you would notice some uh, kind of adverse and negative feel underneath your feet. Right, exactly. So with that rear wheel, rear wheel moving backwards, I mean, it's taking your cassette with it, of course. And simply put, your cassette is getting farther away from your chain ring, right, Cass? Like that's, it doesn't get any simpler than that. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and as the cassette moves farther away, it pulls on the chain, and that is not going to let the suspension move freely unless, Casimir... Idler pulley time. Dun, dun, tell, dun, me, dun, 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 tell me about idler pulleys, Kaz. So the idler pulley basically reroutes the chain So um, in order to counteract that chain growth. So the, the chain goes above a pulley that's located on that higher pivot, goes over that and around the chain ring, and that way it basically makes it so that that as the put this into words in my head converting images into words as the uh as the rear wheel is moving backwards you're not getting that that tug or the pedal kickback because of the the chain has moved up higher in line with that pivot now right so is it as simple as just sticking an idler pulley on a high pivot bike and boom every everything is fixed it's great Uh, good to go it's a good first step, but there's also the actual size of that pulley and the position matters as well. Um, you can kind of tune in some mm-hmm. of the anti-squat and really affect the, the pedaling, how the bike will pedal based on the uh, like chain ring, uh, the, uh, either size and location. Is it, is it the same rough uh, sort of set of variables compared to pivot location and chain ring? Like if you move that idler up and down in relation to the... To the pivot the high pivot mm-hmm. is it roughly the same you get the same effect yeah or, yeah same concept. You know, t- tuning your yeah. squat yeah. yeah yeah and you can and do that with the the size of the pulley or the size of the um pulley mm-hmm. wheel itself too yeah the size and then some companies offer multiple positions like that crazy acto 5p train has two positions for its pulley wheel 
One that Simon, the guy who makes it, says creates a more active ride. So, I mean, bike's not going to feel quite as efficient. And then there's a more all-around trail setting, and that's the setting that that we tested it in. The Kaz, idler bikes, bikes with idler pulleys have been around for a long time. I've owned a few of them. Nightmares. Way back in the day in the early 2000s. Uh, less so these days, but there is some extra complication there. And what else are we dealing with, too? Um, that would probably be it. I mean, you have an either bully and a longer chain. It's really pretty simple. I mean, you're kind of on record as hating and talking about how they have their nightmares because of you your too. post-traumatic stress disorder that you have <laughs> from the last ones. But, oh, you know, I think if they're done right, there's not a... They are obviously more, a little more maintenance, a little more things going on than a regular bike, but... They're not, the vast majority of these days aren't nightmares anymore, I would say. It can still be, a, it, it is still a drawback. Like anytime you add complication, you add a pulley, you add a thing, it's, there's another potential failure point. Yeah, yeah, it's more, but like in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty easy to deal with, yeah. I would say. It's, it's, you know, you don't have to tear things apart, but yeah, it is. I mean, even just for some people, the fact they have to buy two chains, depending on which model or of uh, which brand they're going with, some of them do require one and a half chains, so when you have to replace your chain, you can't just get one. You got to get two. So that's a drawback. Jay, yeah, I was just going to say what would have to happen for you to not see that as a drawback anymore, Levy. Like, you've, you know, a lot of the bikes you've tested recently kind of haven't gone wrong. Like, how long would you need to ride a bike like that to be common? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, it's been, I mean, when I had some of those high pivot bikes, it was pretty wet and gross. And they get they get filled with mud and that stuff, but that's not really a drawback. Like they clear out pretty well, to be fair. Was it just that you kept snapping chains when you were doing wheelie drops in like two thousand and four? Is that the problem? <laughs> no, <laughs> those original idlers they were so fragile. So like the bolts they were on would bend, teeth would break off the idlers, the chain would pop off. Like they were nightmares. Yeah, especially but... if you're doing wheelie drops in two thousand four. Yeah, well, that was my special. That's all I had back then. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, modern high pivot bikes that use idlers, I mean, Kaz, they work really well, don't they? Yeah, and th but I did have the Norco Shore, and I did have an issue where the chain popped off, and it was a little bit more inconvenient getting a chain back on than it would be on a non-high pivot bike. So yeah. there's no getting around. There's a little bit more going on there, but I don't think it's a massive, there's massive drawback. There's more friction too, right? Like there's, you definitely are losing some some watts one, somewhere in there. One percent so the race people. crowd. No, those companies are talking out their ass. So James, the answer to your question is they have to feel better when you're pedaling. Um, I'm not sure if it's just purely down to chain line or just that there's another another set of teeth that the chain has to go over. They feel like ass through the pedals when I'm pedaling. I could. So what have yeah. you been riding? That deviant Highlander, like you ride it and you pedal it and I could feel, not in all the gears, but I could feel it and it doesn't feel efficient. I don't want to pedal these things all day. Yeah, but like yeah, the cabins and the, they definitely, the Forbidden. There's more feedback, isn't there? Yeah, there's a little bit. I think like the company say 1%. You'd be able to tell it. Not, I would say you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell. No. Yeah, we, we've all ridden bikes that have a lower chain guide with a little roller on there or a little thing that the chain I hate those over. too. <laughs> right, but it's the same exact thing as that, basically. So if, you've, yeah. if you got used to that, then you're going to be fine on this. Yeah, but I wouldn't I would never have that chain guide set up on a bike that I want to pedal for four or five hours either. Well, those aren't cross-country bikes. You're, yeah, a little bit. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we all are. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The the. I think that the like lack of efficiency does get a little bit overblown too. I'm not saying it's not there. Like there definitely is a difference and for sure in a cross country field or like in a trail bike that you just want to feel perfectly smooth, the high pivot is not going to be the thing. But if you're going for like an enduro bike or a downhill bike, it's again, I don't think it's as not like a deal breaker. And I don't notice it as being like, Oh, I can feel that every single pedal stroke. I hate this. It's more, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly me during every ride on a high pivot. I'm like, oh, this is cost to be 2.3 watts, boys. I got to turn around. <laughs> yeah, you got your cross country <laughs> shoes on, and yeah, I'm I'm just joking, everybody. So but let's really. let's be positive, Kaz. What do you like about high pivot bikes? Someone's considering a high pivot bike. Tell me what you like about them. What kind of rider they would make sense for? Yeah, I think that, I mean, overall, someone with rough terrain, like if you live somewhere smooth and swoopy, there's really no need for a bike like this because that's where their benefit, their main benefit is the ability to get out of the way of, you know, chunky sections of trail. So if they're somewhere smooth, it's not really worth having that extra complication and weight and all that things that we already talked about. But if you're somewhere like in the, the cabins review, I mentioned that that bike would be one of my ideal bikes for the North Shore. Like the North Shore is just full of square edge hits, like chunky rocks and things that just want to stop your bike from going forward. But on that bike, you can really just plow through things and stay kind of glued to the ground and tracking in the way that you want to go. So I think that's the main benefit for me is just the ability to smash through everything and not feel anything. Like, yeah, you can just plow, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kaz, you you touched on something there. You said stick to the ground. Is that, it's something that we've said about multiple high pivot bikes. Basically, I mean, almost most of them that we've tested, they, they tend to be bikes that stay to the ground more is that an inherent trait that's in high pivot bikes and if so why and can you change it with high pivot bikes the axle path can be different on different ones depending on how they've got the layout so some have a an axle path that's totally rearward throughout the entire uh, stroke whereas some are rearward and then they start to go a little more forward towards the end Um, but basically as you're compressing in suspension the bike's getting longer so in my mind i tried to imagine like if you weren't on a bike and you were just going to jump up and down in the air, you kind of curl up in a little ball and then you spring up, you know, like that's how you jump. But on these bikes, they're spreading out and then you've got, you're trying to spread, you're trying to jump this spread out thing into the air. So I think that's kind of the, if that analogy makes sense, that's kind of why they don't jump quite as well as a traditional bike that gets shorter as you compress into it. Um, but there are ways around it. You know, you can run your rebound a little faster, put an air shock on it. Um, they can obviously be jumped and you could have a, good time on it but if you're looking for the absolute poppiest peppiest bike out there i doubt that a high pivot bike is going to really uh see if you open if you start reading a review and you're actively looking for the words playful and poppy or whatever not the bike for you yeah your bike's getting longer you know even in corners and things the bike is getting longer which i like the feel of that on some of these bikes like the way that they just it feels like they're just getting plastered to the the uh, to a corner, which is pretty cool. But some people want to be able to break that back end free, and you know, there's different bikes for different styles. So, yeah, and it is very different. Like you said, like not not every high pivot bike acts 100 percent like that. And an example would be that P train that I had recently for the field test. I expected to get on that thing and it to be it to feel like you said like stuck to the ground and it I mean it definitely it does that part of that is that coil sprung Cane Creek shock um, but less so compared to something like the Deviate Highlander which has a similar amount of travel um, so just like with every other bike the pivot locations and geometry it's not as simple as saying high pivot bike equals stuck to the ground. 
That being said, I've definitely ridden some over the years that are exactly that. And the most obvious example to me, Kaz, would be that Da Vinci Wilson downhill bike. I remember riding that thing and thinking, oh, I just go through the things. I'm just never going to leave the ground. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And wheelbase has a lot to do with it. And we were talking about chainstay length where some of these bikes you look and the chainstays look super short, like 425 millimeters. And it seems, oh, that's crazy short. But then you remember when you sit on the bike, that sags out to like 435 millimeters and you have a bike that feels a lot more, we'll say normal, where some of these other ones actually have even pretty long chainstays to begin with. And then when you sink into the travel, you've got a bike with super long chainstays, which can create a pretty cool feel. But again, some people might not want that, uh, that feel out of their bike. Mm-hmm. Brian, is it as simple as saying someone who likes to pop and play around, they just shouldn't get a high pivot bike? Is it that simple? Uh, I wouldn't be the one to answer that because I'm neither a poppy nor playful rider and I haven't spent that much time on it's been a long time since I rode a high pivot bike um, I actually did ride a Belfa BB7 for a little while <laughs> you owned a BB7? <laughs> I didn't own one no but um, I, I rode one a bit oh man yeah back in the day I'm um, jealous yeah I, I do think that from I think there are really good options despite everybody complaining about like, oh, it's all 29ers, everything's about going fast, nothing's about jibbing and playing around in the woods, you know, 50 to 1 style. I think there are still quite a few great options for those kinds of bikes. There are, you know, the Bronson SB140, um, that type of thing that are smaller wheels, playful suspension that lends itself to that type of riding. And in general, why not? Why not buy a bike? I'm sure you can make a high pivot bike do those things and with the right angles and the right shock and the right tune, but why? Why not take advantage of what it's best for? That design. Yeah, like, exactly. You're just adding a think... bunch of complication and weight and and hardware cost and all the rest. Like why not why not just a four bar layout works just fine for that. So why not keep yeah. it simple? Yeah, the other day I was talking with Owen Pemberton who designed that Forbidden and we were just kind of chatting about how you're never going to see a cross-country bike with these these style things. So, you know, like Forbidden has their uh, Druid was kind of like their short travel bike, which that kind of helped put them on the map because that was a 120 bike with a either, which you typically don't see. Um, now they've got this longer one, longer travel one. And you can kind of imagine that they're probably not going to make an XC bike next. You know, like your, your ideal sweet spot for these, I think, is the Enduro and downhill uh, realm. Let's go, let's go way farther back though. Let's, let's talk about old high pivot bikes. Brooklyn machine works. Oh, is that your favorite Kaz? I think so. Cause I grew up on the East coast and I remember seeing those things come by and they were always, even back then they were so crazy and so heavy. Like I'd imagine a Brooklyn has the record for the heaviest bike ever. Like they were 60 pounds easy. And you put your Gazzolotti's on there, like three old Gazzolotti's and a monster T and they're, they're special. And the people that owned them were just so into them. They're steel too. So like, yeah. I wonder what a Brooklyn with modern geometry, but the same steel construction would ride like. There's a guy who makes them on Instagram. Know. Really heavy still. <laughs> There's a guy who oh, makes like replica ones on Instagram. So yeah. Oh. They exist. Do we do do we have his Instagram handle? Do we know oh, who he, who he I is? I don't have his hand. I'll uh, we'll put it in the article. Yeah, we're gonna have to look into that. That sounds interesting. Yeah. What about you, Brian? Which which OG high pivot bike would you want to try? Ooh, I mean, I'd love to get back on a BB7. I'd totally love to get back on a BB7. I mean, I think the obvious answer is the Honda bike because yes. 
who wouldn't want to try the Honda bike, but... Hey, hey, I was going to say Red Alp. <laughs> I'm sure you were. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to try? <laughs> I mean, it's the highest of high pivots. It's got to be the best. Clearly. Yeah, right? it's the highest bike out there. <laughs> Jeez. I owned I owned a bunch of oranges which had a fairly high pivot, but no idler pulley, thank God. So no trouble there. And there was also the original Trek Session Casimir. Do you remember that thing with the high pivot? Yeah, was that a session or was it a diesel? Well, there was also the diesel. I think uh, they were different. Oh, maybe I'm wrong though. Somebody I'm tell me sure. in the comments. Yeah. But yeah, I remember that. And a Lahar, the Carbon Lahar, and a Zero, and then that gorgeous Empire. There's a whole bunch of them. Yeah, that Lahar is cool too. My buddy Wayne had a KHS Dominatrix with an idler pulley and oh, a yeah. Romic Classic. shock. <laughs> I think I think that's where all my nightmares come from. <laughs> yeah, see, this explains things. That bike gives me nightmares still. I can still picture that orange and black thing. Oh, those are the worst. So like a oh, Mr. God. Dirt chain guide on yeah. it or something. So yeah. he had his Romic shock blow up like 80 times, but one time it blew up and like at the same time is his idler pulley broke, but he wanted to come riding anyway. So he he came riding with us. And I remember sitting on this bike and pedaling it around and you would pedal and the, the slightest chain tension and the shock would just top out. Like it would just extend and want to throw you over the handlebars. It was quite the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So if we move forward to modern times, Kaz, you've been riding a ton of high pivot bikes. The most recent being that Cavan's VHP 16, that's a virtual high pivot, as well as the Dreadnought, the Norco Shore. What else have you ridden lately with high pivots? That's pretty, that's it for me. You've been on, I think I've got one more, more recently than you, but yeah, you also had that, you had that DVA and the uh, P train. So you yep. get two, I got three. So yeah. Of those, of those three, do you have a favorite? Um, I gotta say, my my time on the dreadnought is pretty limited. I only had, I think, three rides by the time I had to send it back. We're working on getting one for a longer term review, but um, I think that cabins is my favorite just because it like super like uh, it wasn't a crazy bike to ride. Like I got to pick the geometry, so the numbers were the reach number was what I liked, and some of those other things. But um, for like tighter, techier stuff, that bike was so fun. Like I could get into things that I would those moments like, I don't know if I'm going to make this. I made a number of those moments with that bike where it just kind of let me get away with some stupid lines, which I like that. I have a question of those bikes. It strikes me that the shore doesn't your, the way you described the shore had, had none of the adjectives that we've used to, to say good things about high pivot designs. Yeah. I didn't get along that well. with Why, the shore. why is I, that? Um, some of it, potentially the tune on that shock i'm not sure if they had like a higher compression tune it just didn't have that super supple like suck up every bump that you kind of expect a high pivot bike to have Um, like i ran the correct spring rate and all that but it still felt like just kind of felt more more feedback was reaching me than i expected Um, the bike was also super heavy so you know that was 37 pound bike i think if you put even burly tires on you're gonna by running a smaller sorry could they could they fix it by putting a smaller idler on it I don't think the idler is what's causing the issue. I think it could have been maybe more with the the shock tune on that potentially. Um, you don't think it was an anti squat yeah, thing? No, I don't think so. I don't because you're not you're not getting the anti squat is more for pedaling. It's not your downhill performance. Remember because you have the um, it's not affecting the way your shock is working when you're going down the hill. I don't think. Yep. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think the the, the shore just I'm not exactly. It was also a long bike, like the chainstay length on that. I want to say it's like four forty five before it sags so 
in a 63 degree head angle. So it just starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, it just turned into a little bit more of a boat than I was looking for where the cabins, I felt it was a lot more manageable on more regular trails. And, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. The cabins and the dreadnought, they both similar amounts of travel, same sort of intentions. Are you still reaching for the cabins and why? Um, well, I sent the dreadnought back, so, um, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> yeah. But when they were both, like when I had them both, I think it's a kind of a toss up of which you're, what you're looking for. The, the cool thing about the dreadnought is that it has a fully rearward axle pass. So throughout the whole travel, you're getting that rear wheel still traveling backwards. So even though the dreadnought has 154 millimeters of travel while the cabinets has 160, I don't think you'd be, you wouldn't think you don't hop on the dreadnought and think, Oh, I want more travel. It's one of those bikes that, um, does really well with the way that it manages it's traveling. I think a lot has to do with that axle path and the, the suspension curve that they've given it as well. All right, guys. So obviously these high pivot bikes aren't going anywhere, but why don't we see more of them? And do you think we're going to see more of them in the future? I mean, it sounds like a lot of people like these things. So why aren't we seeing way more high pivot bikes out there? I think there's sort of three, three main factors we've talked touched on the the more weight and more complication potential for something to go wrong uh definitely loss of efficiency in there a little bit i think one that probably gets overlooked is hardware costs um bike brands bikes are expensive today um bike brands are looking for places to save themselves money if not if not the consumer money um and yeah all that anytime you add hardware you're at, you know you add a little pulley you add a little bit more chain you have to pay for whatever it it adds cost and it's not like we're as consumers willing to accept oh wait it's a high pivot bike i'm ready to spend 10 percent more necessarily like that our brains don't work that way so because you're you're deciding between a dreadnought and a whatever a, a nomad or whatever it is you're not you're not deciding between two different high pivot bikes. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you're shopping for a bike, the, the high pivot design is, is interesting, but it's not like you need this to reach this level. You know, it's not one of those, it's just another option out there. So you can't really, I'm sure someone will say that it's superior and better than anything out there, but you can still win world cup races and EWS and your local races on a regular four bar bike. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of another option, but not necessarily the be all end all of superiority. All right, I'm going to close up this high pivot discussion with a question for you all. James, you first. You're buying a new bike tomorrow. Is it high pivot um, or not? Probably not, I don't think. Okay, Brian, what about you? You going out to buy a new bike tomorrow? I mean, if they, the look, like a Brooklyn, if they look like a Brooklyn machine works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. You, Brian's you know, buying a Brooklyn. <laughs> you know, it's a good question. I don't think I do. I don't think I buy a high pivot bike. But I do think that if I, to give, if I, gun to my head, had to choose a bike to set my fastest time on something pretty, a pretty aggressive track, I think a high pivot bike would probably give me the best chance at it. Just apples to apples comparison, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's out to lunch. Kaz, what about you? Yeah, I'm not sure. Like a downhill bike, I would definitely be super curious about a high pivot for downhill bike mm -hmm. and then i'm not sure like enduro bike maybe but i like i said i could be totally happy on a non-high pivot bike so that's what like they're really cool to ride but for me they don't they're not just like this is what i need to be on for the rest of my life so 
yeah, it'd be a lot of pros and cons, Wayne. And for trail bike, definitely would not. If go you were, to, what if you were an enduro racer? What if you were, if you were trying to set your fastest enduro time? I don't know. Okay. When you care yeah, about not winning. sure. You know, I probably would not go with one if I was an enduro racer. Uh, and this is like shooting myself back in the foot, but the extra complication, just because if something goes wrong during the race, you're out there. And I, if I'm going to be messing around with that either pulley or something, then I don't think I would go for it. But if BG's I was a pro guy. everybody. Yeah, I know. But if I wasn't racing, I don't know. It's so hard. There's so many good bikes out there. I would just have a That's fleet. I would have like my high Wednesdays would be like high pivot day. And then like Mondays would be single pivot day. And <laughs> but isn't that what your yeah. life is like right now? <laughs> I know. I like it. <laughs> it's a really good <laughs> life. <laughs> but yeah, I could, I could see like that cabins and, and, and maybe that forbidden, I could have that as my everyday all around bike and, and have a really good time. So. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I, I was a big fan of the P train. I'm hoping to get the aluminum version of the P train, but no, I think for how I ride, I probably would not. No, I definitely would not reach for a high pivot bike. So I think we're zero for four there unless we're going enduro racing. It sounds like no, downhill riding. Downhill, and, I think. I really like, when I rode that Commonsault Supreme, that bike was so fun, like, for smashing things. Yeah. They, they are really good at that. Mm-hmm. They do make you feel like a superhero. Yeah, I like that. So somewhere in my yeah. fleet, I would have a high pivot. I don't know which kind or what, but I would have one. At least have access. Maybe we can all just buy one Brooklyn and share it. Can Pig Bike buy a Brooklyn? Brian? Brian, sure. please. Sure, we yeah. have it? Brian, do it. I want it. it. <laughs> yes. It's on. It's on. Somebody... Send me links in the com- listeners. Send us links in the comment section to your Brooklyn Machine Works for sale. Pink bike is gonna buy one. I don't know what yeah. we're gonna do with it. <laughs> Who <I> cares? <laughs> think I'm gonna have. I'll to race you. It. I'll race. I'll be on the Brooklyn, and you be on the Brody. We can race. This is gonna be good. <laughs> the eight ball versus the Brooklyn. It's not gonna yeah. be pretty. <laughs> As always, we're going to wrap this up with comment gold. And the first one is on Saturday Sends. Our first Saturday Sends, by the way. If you hadn't seen it, the name explains it all. Every Saturday, we're going to have a video roundup. People sending it. First comment gold is from Mr. Gilsh. What a clever way to encourage the production of more Friday fail content. <laughs> yeah, it's a circle. We've closed the circle now. We can have a perpetual motion machine. Yeah. <laughs> James, do you watch Friday uh, Fails? I, uh, guiltily, maybe one a month. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, what about you? Do you watch it? I'm a terrible person. I watch like Russian YouTube compilations and things. Oh. and disaster explosions yeah no i'm not a good person so yeah kaz i don't watch them no never i can't stand them i hate watching that stuff it makes me think i'm I'm afraid it's contagious and it's gonna make me a worse rider so i don't watch them i I I watch the saturday sense i like watching people send it yeah but i definitely don't want to watch people ragdolling and their shoes coming off just before i'm going for a bike ride like (laughs) i don't need that in my head (laughs) yeah not at all and our last comment gold, this one's from Kay, Kay Pickerel. It's in the Slack Randoms Sendy Horse. You didn't watch the Slack <laughs> Randoms, did you, Levy? I don't, I don't click on anything that's not my own. <laughs> What's uh, the Sendy Horse? I mean, it, it does it's what it says on the horse. tin, yeah. <laughs> the horse going huge. Okay, well, Kay Pickerel, he says, Foley Hawk. That's pretty clever, actually. I didn't get that till those ones where you read it and you're like, oh fuck, that's better than I did. <laughs> yeah, the the headline needed work. That was real good. Yeah, yeah. All right, everybody, that is it for our episode on high pivot bikes. 
I'm going to go for a ride on my low pivot bike and we'll see everybody next week. <laughs> <laughs>